Good singing. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, we're going to be turning back to the Gospel of John as we've been with the Lord in the upper room these last several weeks. We pick up at the end of chapter 15. Again, some apologies. He has uh, uh, brought together so many uh, things in these last words. It's difficult sometimes to to uh, get to every emphasis in every verse. I will take the uh, overall emphasis that he's given to us from 15. I'll pick up reading in verse 20, and then I'll read well into John 16 with you, down to verse 15. So John chapter 15, reading in verse 20, the Lord now preparing his disciples to begin their great ministry as he himself is departing. He says, 1520, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, They would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But... When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Well, let us pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be that exactly what we had read, that he would bring even us this conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment and much more to bring us the things of Christ. May he declare to us the things which he himself has heard. May the Holy Spirit operate now in our midst that this would not be a theoretical sermon, but that we would see and know and, and hear the effects of the Holy Spirit in every life, in every voice, as we also conclude with the Amen. Well, there was in the ancient world a captain who was uh, famous for always being first or nearly always first in the fight, whose sword was legendary and dreaded by his enemies. They talked about his sword. In fact, there was so much talk about the sword that his king asked him if he could see the sword and see what uh, everyone was talking about. So he sent the sword to the king. And he received it back from the king with this message, I see nothing wonderful in the sword. I cannot understand why any man should be afraid of it. The, kept, the captain returned a message to the king, Your majesty has been pleased to examine the sword, but I did not send the arm that wielded it. If you had examined that and the heart that guided the arm, you would have understood the mystery. Well, we find the same mystery when we consider the great spread of the Christian faith. Jesus in the upper room is here speaking to some very ordinary men. Nothing wonderful about them. They're mostly fishermen. They're not remarkable or influential in any way. But in a few days, one of them will stand up at Jerusalem at 9 o'clock in the morning and give a message about Jesus. A message that might very well have been laughed at or simply ignored. But that day, in fact, thousands believed. And not only believed, but they changed the fundamental commitments of their lives, root and branch. It was, of course, the day of Pentecost. And yet that day was only the beginning. For day after day, the disciples were telling people what had happened, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and what that meant for them and for their eternal life as well. And then in a thousand conversations in homes, in the markets, in the temple, in the halls of government, these new Christians, excited and fresh with the conviction of such supernatural realities, told others, and they believed too. People that should not have believed. People who had no intention of believing in Jesus Christ. People, in fact, who were hostile, some of which had called for his crucifixion. Wealthy, comfortable, sophisticated people in great cities of the world, unlettered peasants in primitive places were all conquered by this message, this message with strange power of a crucified and risen Messiah. Who can explain it? Well, today the Lord gives the explanation of this mystery. An explanation which we can summarize in the Lord's own words from chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, that when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness. So many of us are naturally shy, introverted, timid. We long to see others coming to faith, however, and sh to share our joy in God with us. But who are we? We are not very impressive either. Who would listen to us? 
probably no one, we say. You look at these disciples, so ordinary, 11 men to whom Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. We think about their weakness, their times of confusion, their cowardice, their selfishness, their lack of education. It's amazing that Jesus could look at this little group of men and say, I'm going to do it all through you. We would get discouraged or be confused if we looked only at the sword. And so Jesus, in the passage before us, directs us to look at the arm that wielded it. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So far in the upper room, our Lord has been speaking warmly of the greatness of the Christian life, the nobility of it, and the blessing of it, about how we abide in him as a vine, and by a living faith bear much fruit that will last for eternity. The Holy Spirit also, he said, given to empower us, and as a result, we will do greater works than Jesus himself. In the meanwhile, also enjoying communion with the Lord and with each other in this community of brotherly love. But now the Lord strikes you hear a discordant tone. He says that this Christian community of love will provoke hatred, the hatred of the world. As much love as there may be within, those outside will not share it. And so he uses the word hate or hatred seven times in this passage. However, he's not warning us without, of course, also comforting us and encouraging us. You could see that, for instance, from the first and last verse of chapter 16, first verse, these things I speak to you that you should not be made to stumble. Do do not be surprised. There's nothing unusual that's going to be happening. And the last verse, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So he says there will be opposition, but there will be salvation. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will kept yours as well. Keep yours as well. So these disciples are now going to be sent out into the great wide world to be the ambassadors of the King of Kings. But they are not going alone. And that is the great emphasis and encouragement of this chapter. Let's consider first the hatred of the world, and second, at greater length, the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. The hatred of the world, the Spirit's ministry to the world. And we'll conclude. First, the hatred of the world, the unmistakable note that introduces this to us. In fact, back in chapter 7, Jesus said that the world hated him. Why? Well, because he testified that its deeds were evil. He revealed God's true judgment on their true selves. To illustrate, I recently read the story of a pioneer missionary in inland Africa who had a little mirror hanging on the tree outside of his home. And the wife of an African chief came by and just glanced at it, having never seen a mirror before. Uh, She looked and she saw what was her own face, what with uh, paint and rather hard features. She was startled and she ran to the missionary and said, who is that horrible looking person in the tree? It's not the tree, said the missionary. The glass is reflecting your face. She couldn't believe it until she actually held the mirror in her hand. When she understood, she said to the missionary, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? The missionary didn't want to sell the mirror. 
but she insisted so strongly that in the end he thought it would be better to sell it and to avoid any potential trouble. So he set a price, she bought the glass, and then fiercely she said, I will not have it making faces at me again, and she threw it down and broke it into pieces. Well, this is why the world hates Jesus. They, he revealed to them themselves in such a way he says, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, of course, in our passage, Jesus is warning that the disciples will be receiving the very same treatment as he sends them out in his name. 1521, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. They will be hated, he says, for they are not of the world, 1619. And when John uses the word, the word world, of course, he's not talking about every human being or the human race. He's using it in the sense of the world that is in rebellion to God, or as John puts it elsewhere, the world that does not know God. And sometimes that world is even in the church, as Jesus points out how often the church of a previous day had murdered the prophets of old. Indeed, it was the church of his own day that murdered the prince of life. And already John had said, if you, conv if you confess Jesus as the Christ, you could be put out of the synagogue in their day. But soon, Jesus says, you're going to be put to death, not just put out of the synagogue, put to death. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. Somebody who's doing evil may grow tired or bored of evil, but someone who thinks that he is serving God by persecuting the disciples, he will be unrelenting. So it was, and so it continued in the church, the unbelieving and the worldly parts of the church, then persecuting the faithful, even for the next several centuries to come. I just read recently this so discouraging maltreatment of Athanasius and Chrysostom and the ways in which supposedly Christian bishops meted out their mistreatment. You know, every year I take the family to the beach, and we probably do the same thing that you do if you go swimming in the ocean and there's a current. We wade out into the water, and we enjoy the waves, and we just let the current push us for a while down the beach. But after a couple blocks, we will get out and walk back to where we started and do it all over again. You know why we do that? because it's no fun to be constantly fighting the current. It's much more comfortable and enjoyable to give in, just to float down, even if you have to walk back later. It's the same way in the world. You know, you don't feel any pressure when you're going with the current of the age. But as soon as you plant your feet and take a stand, it's then the difficulty begins. And it's hard to go against the pressure. It's hard to be fighting against the flow. Certainly a life of testifying for Christ and righteousness will cut against the grain and stir up the outrage of the world. It did in Jesus' case, and it will in the disciples' case as well, he says. But anything less will be cowardice. And certainly the world is not going to be benefited by one more person just floating with the current. Sacrifice is the law of progress, wrote J.R. Miller. Every blessing we enjoy represents a martyrdom somewhere in the past. Truth has always been advanced through the persecution of those who at first stood up alone to declare what God had said. For example, the blessings of liberty that have come to us through tears and blood. 
All along the centuries, holy men wore chains and languished in dungeons that we today may have civil and religious freedom. Blessed are they who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they have lightened the world by their testimony, fertilized it with their tears and their blood. End quote. And so it is that this is the context in which he is sending them out. Wherever the good news goes, it will provoke violence and strong opposition. From the days of Jesus, the Christians did find themselves beset by enemies in the society, the government, even the church. And Christianity conquered by suffering. So many years later in the 4th century, the Emperor Julian, so-called the apostate, he told his advisors that in his view, one great reason for the spread of the gospel in the Roman world is the courage and the grace that Christians constantly displayed in the face of the threat of torture or death because of their love for Christ. The blood of the martyrs truly was the seed of the church. And you know that suffering has a way of also driving us closer to Christ, right, than we would be otherwise. Um, Soldiers who survived the horrors of prison camp in, say, World War II or Vietnam would testify that their fellow prisoners were their closest friends with whom they shared the deepest bond for the rest of their lives. And this principle is seen in our relationship with Jesus. It's what Paul meant when he wrote to the Philippians saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. For when we choose to suffer bravely with grace, the world notices. We must testify, Jesus says. We must bear witness. And some will reject that world outright and even hate us for it. But some will keep it, he says, to eternal life. And what makes the difference? Well, this is the good news from our passage we come to. In our, in our passage, we, we find then the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, just as I was sitting here before the service, I was thinking that in the, in the days of the disciples, they knew the promises of the prophets that the, that the days of Messiah would come and the nations of the world would be reconciled to God. And they needed the, they needed the warning that this was not going to be easy. Nowadays, I think we know it's not easy. But we need the encouragement that the gospel has a great destiny in the world. It's the opposite for us. And in our passage, we have two separate statements concerning the work of the Holy Spirit, given two descriptions of the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. You remember a few weeks ago, we considered the Spirit's ministry to Christians, teacher, helper, and so forth. Now here, the emphasis is on the Spirit's ministry to the world, which is our second and longest and last point the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. Jesus says, 16.7, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. For when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And we read back in chapter 15, he will testify of me and you also will bear witness. 
We cannot bring grace and light to the world by ourselves. We can't persuade anyone. We cannot change a heart. But the Holy Spirit can do all this and much more as he testifies with us, even through us. Here is the mighty arm that will wield the weak sword. The Holy Spirit empowering your witness and mine, and that of the church, to drive home the truth to the conscience of the world. To bring the world, I have three C's for you, comprehension, conviction, and commitment to Christ. Comprehension, conviction, and commitment to Christ. Borrowed that from Boyce, by the way. But comprehension, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, people would have no understanding at all of spiritual things. If anything, Jesus says, only a dislike for them. But the Bible says elsewhere, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. At best, they are foolishness. You can explain the gospel clearly. You can proclaim it forcefully, winsomely, wisely, and people will consider it a stumbling block or worse than foolishness. But when the Holy Spirit is at work, even the most humble and weak testimony has the greatest effect. Light. Understanding. People see what they've never seen before. People say, I, I sat in church for 18 years and I never understood. But suddenly people will understand their desperate condition, their need for the Savior, which is what we are taught here is conviction. Conviction. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You'll, you might know the name Reuben Torrey or R.A. Torrey. He was one of the more popular Christian authors of the 20th century, and he ministered for several years at the Chicago Avenue Church. Torrey became burdened over the fact that they were seeing so little conviction of sin, so little profound conviction of sin. And then one night, one of the other church leaders in the congregation said to Torrey, you know, I'm greatly troubled by the fact that we have so little conviction of sin in our meetings. And Torrey was like, yeah. Well, he says, while we are, ha we are having conversions and many additions to our church, there is not the deep conviction of sin that I like to see. So I suggest that we, the officers of the church, meet from night to night to pray that there may be more conviction of sin in our meetings. This is the very thing that was on Tory's heart. He agreed, so they all started meeting and praying. And it was the next Sunday evening that Tory noticed a man in the congregation, a man he had not seen before. He was very well dressed, had a large diamond tie uh, pin on his shirt front. And he kept his eyes riveted on Tory all through his message. After the service, the man was clearly disturbed. I don't know what's the matter with me, he groaned. I never felt this way in my life. I was starting out this afternoon to meet some men and spend the afternoon gambling. But as I passed the park, I saw one man testifying whom I'd known, and I waited to hear what he had to say. When he finished, I went on down the street. I had not gone far when some strange power took hold of me and brought me back, and I stayed through the meeting. Then this gentleman spoke to me and brought me over to your church. I heard you preach. And then he broke down and sobbed, crying, Oh, I don't know what's the matter with me. 
I feel awful. I've never felt this way before in my life. I know what's the matter with you, Tori said. You are under conviction of sin, for the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. But that night, Tori brought that convicted man to Jesus Christ, who took that burden off his back, and he was born again. And it was the first of several striking conversions in the Chicago Avenue Church. So your elders are going to be praying for you. Conviction, just so you know. Well, we read here of three particulars about which the Spirit brings conviction. Of sin, which is yours. Of righteousness, which may be yours. And of judgment, which must be yours. Jesus assures his disciples, because my spirit is now going into the world and bringing conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, by some you will be opposed, and that will be painful. By others you will be believed, and that will be wonderful. Your words will come with supernatural power into the heart, making some angry, making some weep. He will testify. And you also will bear witness. And people will come to me. For the Holy Spirit brings comprehension and conviction and commitment to Christ. Commitment to Christ. He will testify of me. 1526. This is the great work of the Holy Spirit of bringing men and women, boys and girls, to Jesus. Not calling attention to himself, but then throwing the light on Christ. One winter evening, uh, Jim Packer was walking to church to preach on the verse here, he shall glorify me. And he was just racking his brain for some illustration that he might use in his sermon. Well, he wrote, I, I turned and I saw the building floodlit. as so I rounded the corner and I realized... This was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. But you, what you are meant to see is the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen in the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all of its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's role shining on the Savior. That when God is at work in you, you see things you've never seen. Do you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, just as he said that he was, and that he died, the just for the unjust, to might bring you to God and deliver you from sin? Are you convinced that that in him is salvation. Are you convicted and turning to Jesus? If so, I assure you that there's only one answer. It is God the Holy Spirit who is at work within you. Comprehension and conviction and commitment to Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's great ministry to the world. He will testify and we also will bear witness. And there's one more important work of the Spirit that's often neglected, but that is given here in the passage, which I'd like to point out to you. The inspiration of the Scriptures. 
the inspiration of the scriptures, these two complementary ways in which the Holy Spirit is bringing Christ to the world. We already read a little about this back in chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he would remind the disciples of all that Jesus had told them while he was with them, a statement which obviously only applies to those disciples. Uh, the apostles. And similarly here in 1527, that they would bear testimony as those who had been with Jesus from the beginning. We all will bear testimony, I suppose, but this is especially true for these who were with Jesus. And then it's possible to see here in chapter 16, a reference to the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination to every Christian. Of course, he guides every believer to the truth, as I've just said, comprehension, conviction, and commitment to Christ. But the emphasis here does seem to fall on the greater ministry that the Holy Spirit will perform through the apostles for the sake of the world and all generations of Christians after that. 1612, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he'll speak and he'll tell you things to come. This surely also has an application only to these men. The Lord has in view the Holy Spirit's special ministry to these men to know and to pass on the truth. These men who would become the apostles and the authors then of our Gospels. The Holy Spirit has this role to take of Christ, to give it to them as the spirit of truth so that they can give it to the world. So that we have whom to thank for the fact that we hold in our hands a true witness of Jesus? The Holy Spirit. It is he who gave us these words. These men who wrote it, Peter tells us, are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And why does that book have such a mighty power? and such a wonderful effect in our lives and on the world itself. Because in that book, the Holy Spirit still is revealing Jesus. The Holy Spirit saw to it that the authors should be men, weak, dull as they were, as we know them to be. Nevertheless, who had the whole, the entire truth about Christ in their minds and hearts, everything remembered rightly, everything put down by his own superintendence and inspiration upon the page, we have the Holy Spirit to thank for our knowledge of Jesus Christ, first to last. It wasn't those disciples afterward. They, they wrote it. They were, they were average writers, many of them. Some better than others, no doubt. It's not from them that this power has come. There is another hand, the Holy Spirit, bringing the word to their minds that by his superintendence and inspiration that we should truly know Jesus first to last. I've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ, said a wise man, but he has written me a letter. And we might add that letter has come through this Holy Spirit who both wrote it down and then read it to me, none other than the Holy Spirit of God. And so we have, you see, this dual ministry of the Spirit in the Word that you have and I have. And the power in the heart that makes it living and active.
This is his great ministry to the world. Uh, interesting study by the American Bible Society very recently. 88% of Americans own a printed Bible. Um, surely now uh, 100 million people going on a billion have downloaded the, YouTube, the U-version Bible app. Um, it's amazing. Uh, online, we have more Bible study tools than any time in the history of the world. It's unbelievable. Our translations, our, our language helps, cultural backgrounds, podcasts, classes, an unbelievable amount of resources that God puts at our disposal free. 80% of Americans say still today the Bible is sacred, and 61% of Americans wished they read it. So American. God has inspired a book that I may have freely access. I may freely access it. I should really read that sometime. As one man said, we're starving to death in the grocery store. We have so much. The Holy Spirit has done such a massive work in giving to us these mighty words that through them, with His power, they might come and bring us, well, comprehension and conviction and commitment to Christ. And we starve to death in the grocery store. Ignore it no longer. Well, in conclusion, Jesus says to them in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And then, of course, in chapter 2 and throughout the book, practically every time we read about the filling of the disciples with the Holy Spirit, the next thing it says is, and they spoke boldly. They're intimidated. They're persecuted. They pray for more boldness. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they speak again with courage. And it's very interesting. In the, the prayer meeting, they don't say, oh, God, get rid of this trial, or make the media go more in our direction, or God, pass some laws to protect us. They don't actually even pray that. They don't pray for anything out there to change. Did you notice that? They don't pray for anything out there to change. They pray for everything in here to change. Oh, God, fill us with your spirit and with boldness. And then things will change. We know things will change because then we will speak and then also he will testify and then we will see the power of God at work in the world. When things change in here, then things will change out there. How about you? What are you asking for? You feel inadequate. You are inadequate. I'm inadequate. Stop looking at the sword. Turn your eyes upon the arm that wields it. That will make all the difference. Speak and do not be silent. Then things, will, the power of God will change things in the world. Young people, do you speak of Christ and his word and his gospel? I charge you, I challenge you to do it now and to do it again before it becomes a habit to become safe and secure. Believe me, I've seen young people be courageous for the Lord's sake in their teenage years. And I'll tell you about what happens to them they become adults that have courage the rest of their lives. The habit of cowardice is far too easily formed and very difficult to break. You be strong now and put the Lord and put your faith to the test and find, as so many have before you, that it is not so hard when experience has proved to you again and again that the Lord will be beside you and the Spirit will testify with you.
and that some will object and some will believe. And anything that you might suffer for Christ in the meantime will be sweeter than anything you enjoyed without him. Years ago, there was a night that Chicago Bulls rookie Stacy King went on the court, and that night he scored one point in a basketball game, and Michael Jordan scored 69 points same night. Stacy King, rookie, said, I'll always remember the night that Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points. <laughs> and yet in our lives, it's not that we do our own little part and God does the rest. On our own, we could do nothing. We couldn't put a single point on the board. But I tell you that all things are in the hand of our God who has said, I will lead you to victory. He will testify. And you also will bear witness. And the world will believe. Let us pray. Father, you have indeed given us every encouragement and promise to speak for Christ in this world. And we know that we need the Spirit desperately. We feel our weakness, and we pray that you would grant us new boldness, even as the church had to pray again and again to strengthen us through the fellowship of this church. As we come together before you in the place of prayer, teach us again our calling in this world through your scriptures, the being filled with the Spirit, that we too could not but speak of all that we have seen and heard. Give us new eyes of compassion. Give us eyes to see the power of the arm that wields the frail sword. And forgive us for all the times that we have avoided hardship that comes from striving to live godly in a godless age. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, that we might obey even when it is unpopular to do so, that we should be recognized as your children in Jesus' name.